Thanks for joining us on this week's podcast, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 9th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. Ninth Academy Awards, you say? Somehow we're back in the 30s again. We just can't leave the 30s. What's going on? Nope. The poll is too great. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's 1936. Yep. What's happening? So much. We've got a bunch of domestic news. FDR is reelected in a landslide. He only lost two states this year. That's pretty wild. That's the kind of electoral math that we are not used to these days. Too true. Also this year, relevant, the Dust Bowl and Great Depression are ongoing. Bad times all around in the 30s. We'll see if that's reflected in any of our films. Mm -hmm. We also have the Rural Electrification Act becoming law. Very cool. Bringing electricity to the more remote parts of the country. And then also we have the Flint sit-down strike, which is also known as the Great GM sit-down strike, which unifies the UAW. The following year, the membership of the UAW went from 30,000 to 500,000. Cool news. Strikes. Considering the hot labor summer we've been living through here. Strikes. Strikes, strikes, strikes. Okay, in international news, this is one we know a little about from movies we've watched before. King George V dies this year and Edward VIII succeeds him, then abdicates the throne to marry divorcee Wallace Simpson. (laughs) King George VI succeeds him and that is the king of the king's speech. Also this year, the Spanish Civil War begins. Francisco Franco becomes Spanish head of state and gets nicknamed Generalissimo. Good nickname, bad guy. Yeah. Also this year is the Berlin Olympics. Jesse Owens wins four gold medals, making Hitler furious. What we a did year. it. <laughs> we did it. We did it. In other stuff news, the BBC's first public television broadcast is this year. Pretty fun. Very cool. Also this year, the Hindenburg has its first public flight. Mm. How's that going to go? I mean, poorly. It's, it's going to be <laughs> sad as someone who loves a blimp yeah. and a Zeppelin. Other interesting entertainment news, Billboard magazine publishes its first pop music chart. How were musicians to rank themselves against each other before this? We should have looked up what was the number one thing on the first chart. we We still can. Oh, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) The power of editing. The number one hit of the day was A Little Bit Independent by Fats Waller. Way to go, Fats. The first number one. Quite an accomplishment. Also this year, in sad news, the Tasmanian tiger becomes extinct. We that hate is extinctions on this channel. Yeah. But to, to lift us up, are we going to return to uh, one of our favorite categories on this show, building news? Anything in that category? We love building news. It's a great year for building news. Thanks to one of FDR's works programs. Thank you, Franklin. Mm-hmm. The Hoover Dam is completed this year. That's a big ass dam. Pretty good piece of building. (laughs) Okay, so the top five highest grossing movies of the year to situate us are one, The Great Ziegfeld, two, San Francisco, three, The Plainsman, four, After the Thin Man, and five, Modern Times. I think we're going to be talking about quite a few of those in this episode. It's true, but they did get two of our actual nominees this year. So, Mm -hmm. okay. 
Yeah, not great, not horrible. Yeah. Anything particular notable happening in film this year? Well, notable for the Oscars is this was the first year that the supporting actor and supporting actress categories happened. So that's pretty cool. Recognizing Mm -hmm. more actors. But tell me about Irving Thalberg. This is the real news of the year. Yeah, this again is, you know, sad news. Irving Thalberg is a a Hollywood producer. He was known as the boy wonder of Hollywood, and he died at the young age of 37. Yep. People were sad about it. Real sad. Beloved. Yeah. Sam Goldwyn of MGM wept uncontrollably for two days and was unable to regain his composure enough to attend the funeral. If that tells you how people thought about Irving Thalberg. But yeah, he was... Uh, incredibly prolific producer, made tons and tons of movies, if you look him up. And also, apparently as a child, was told he wouldn't live past like 18 or 20 or something. So he really accomplished quite a bit. So that's the news of 1936. Let us get into the movies. What won? Yes. So this is, again, we got more than five nominees this year. So we're going to talk first about what won, and then we'll talk a little bit about how we've set up for these two episodes. But what won this year was the highest grossing film of the year, mm-hmm. The Great Ziegfeld. You know, people should appreciate it when those things line up with each other, because, yeah. you know, nowadays everyone's like, how come we only nominate little things that no one watches? And the general consensus at the time, obviously we, we often struggle in the 30s to figure this out, but it seems that the general sense was people liked it. It wasn't universally beloved. We found some people who weren't huge fans, but also the New York Times and others put it on their top 10 lists for the year. It seems like it was liked, if not universally acclaimed. And clearly very popular Mm -hmm. at the box office with the people. I would say that the historical consensus now is this is one of these ones that should not have won. Not necessarily. I don't see a lot of people like trashing the movie for being bad. I just think there are other movies this year that ended up being culturally significant that were not recognized well i think the sort of consensus now is that this is an exemplar of like over bloated hollywood excess yeah but so i I don't think of it as in the same category as like crash winning or something and everyone being like how did this happen well i mean it's from 1936 i don't know that anyone has the energy (laughs) as crash winning fair enough i think it's similar to around the world in 80 days i can see that you know, people aren't talking about it all the time because it's no. a million years ago, but mm-hmm. sort of a similar set of issues, maybe. So there are other films that we saw people in their review said, oh, maybe this should have won. Maybe this shouldn't should have won instead. We should say that there are two films from this year that are on like the AFI top 100 list, Modern Times and Swing Time, neither of which were nominated. Modern Times, of course, also in the top five highest mm-hmm. grossing films of the year as well. But I think we saw something that someone said, like, oh, Mr. Deeds goes to town should have won. So there's some variability in terms of yeah. what should have won. There's not like a clear winner from this year. But I do think The Great Sigfield is, you know, people are like, meh. Yeah, it's a it's a resounding meh from history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so that brings us to our what else should have been nominated, if anything. And did we add anything to our bracket part of the conversation? We sure did. So <laughs> we sure did. We felt like we should add in those two AFI top 100 movies. So 
we added Modern Times and we added Swing Time. Mm -hmm. And then we came across another film that was well nominated this year, but did not get nominated for Best Picture called My Man Godfrey, Mm -hmm. which had six nominations overall, screenplay, director, and all four acting categories. And then I came to Best Picture and they were like, nah. Seems fairly well regarded other than the snub for Best Picture. They were like, the direction is good, the story is good, the acting is good. But But when you put it all together, it's only okay. So we thought, I guess we might as well watch this so we know what these people are talking about and how this possibly could have happened. That left us with an uneven number of movies to talk about. So we threw in a surefire one we knew we'd like, (laughs) the sequel to The Thin Man, after The Thin Man. Yeah. Which also had the side effect of giving us our fourth William Powell. It's the year of William Powell, everyone. It's the William Powell Assance, except he didn't go away. But it's sort of like the the Jude Law the, year. The Jude Law year. Yeah. So get ready to hear a lot about William Powell over the next couple of episodes. But yes, yeah, so the four we added in were After the Thin Man, My Man Godfrey, Modern Times, and Swing Time. Okay. So we did our bracket in the usual fashion. We found the Rotten Tomato scores for all of these movies. If there were tie scores, we gave the one with more reviews a leg up. And then we matched them up, you know, one seed versus 14 seed, etc. And we will go through each of these matchups, say which one we think won. And in this episode, we will discuss the losers. And in next episode, we will discuss the winners. Okay, so our matchups. The number one seed is After the Thin Man, the sequel to The Thin Man. It stars William Powell, Myrna Loy, and James Stewart. It was directed by W.S. Van Dyke, written by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich. It was nominated for one, and it won zero. That faces off against our 14 seed, Anthony Adverse, a drama about an orphan's quest to make a name for himself. It stars Frederick March, Olivia de Havilland, and Gail Sondergaard, directed by Mervyn Leroy and written by Sheridan Gibney and Milton Crims. It was nominated for seven, and it won four. Best Supporting Actress, Gail Sondergaard. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Scoring. On All right, three, on the we will say three. What we the, think we will say won? the winner, yes. Yeah. <laughs> One, two, two three. three. After, After the Thin Okay, cool. That brings us to our number two seed, the story of Louis Pasteur, a biopic of Louis Pasteur. It stars Paul Muni, Josephine Hutchinson, and Donald Woods. It's directed by William Dieterle, written by Pierre Collings and Sheridan Gibney. Again, it's nominated for four and it won three. Best actor for Paul Muni, best original story and best screenplay. Against our 13 seed, The Great Ziegfeld, a biopic of Florence Ziegfeld Jr. It stars William Powell, Myrna Loy, and Louise Reiner. I hate to tell you all this, but it's been brought to my attention. It's pronounced Reiner, not Rainer. Directed by Robert Z. Leonard and written by William Anthony Maguire. It was nominated for seven and it won three. Best picture, best actress, Louise Reiner. Best Dance direction. <laughs> One, <laughs> two, two, three. three. The, the story, story of Louis of Pasteur. Pasteur. Okay. That brings us to the matchup between our number three seed, Modern Times, a comedy about Charlie Chaplin's tramp character as he struggles to make a living. It stars Charlie Chaplin and Paulette Goddard. 
It's directed by Charlie Chaplin and written by Charlie Chaplin. It's nominated for zero. It faces off against our 12 seed, Romeo and Juliet, an adaptation of the Shakespeare play, which stars Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard. It was directed by George Cukor and written by Talbot Jennings. It was nominated for four and it won zero. Oof. One, One, two, two, three, three. modern Modern times. times. Okay. That brings us to our number four seed, My Man Godfrey. It's a dramedy about a woman who hires a homeless man as her butler. It stars William Powell and Carol Lombard. It's directed by Gregory LaCava, written by Maury Riskin and Eric Hatch. It was nominated for six and won zero. Ouch. Our 11 seed is Three Smart Girls, a comedy about a trio of sisters who try to prevent their father's marriage to a new woman. It stars Barbara Reed, Nan Gray, and Deanna Durbin. Directed by Henry Coster and written by Adele Comandini and Austin Parker. It was nominated for three, and it won zero. One, One two, three. three. My three Man Godfrey. Girl. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't feel strongly about this, so you're probably going to be able to sway me. Okay, I can tell you why I made a choice. So, you know, I think they both have funny moments. Actually, so I had a really good time watching Three Smart Girls. When we read about it, I was like, what is this going to be? But I thought it was a delight. You were pleasantly surprised. It was very parent-trappy. I just enjoyed it. And I do think there are moments of comedy in My Man Godfrey that work. But, like, the overall message and politics of it are kind of weird yeah i'll say three smart girls i found to be sort of whatever i maybe didn't like it as much as you it was fine and then my man godfrey i agree had some funny moments and then is saying some weird stuff and i think that made me more interested in it. i found it more interesting because i was like sure. what's going on with this movie like it's trying to say something about the world and class and something but i don't really know what yeah. that is so i just was more interested in it but i don't necessarily think one of these movies is like so much better than the other her so what would you like to talk about this time and next time (laughs) let's do my man godfrey this time i think there is more to dig in and again not to just make a decision about how we balance these episodes but some of these movies that we've said are going to be in this episode i have very little to say about okay great then let's keep my man godfrey as a loser sorry william powell it's okay, William Powell. You've gone through already. You'll probably get, you know, oh, now we've got two William Powell losses. No, oh, man. We only, yeah, no, we now have two William Powell losses. Oh, no. Oh, no. What about our fourth William Powell? Okay. <laughs> Next up is Swing Time, our number five seed, a musical about a small town dancer slash gambler who moves to New York City and falls in love with a dance instructor. It stars Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. It's directed by George Stevens, written by Howard Lindsay and Alan Scott. It was nominated for two, and it won one. Best song for The Way You Look Tonight. Hmm. And then we have ten, our, our ten seed, sorry, Libeled Lady, a screwball comedy about a newspaper man trying to get out of a libel suit. It stars Gene Harlow, William Powell, Myrna Loy, and Spencer Tracy. It was directed by Jack Conway and written by Wallace Sullivan. It was nominated for one, and it won zero. One, one two, three, three. libeled lady. lady. Way right. to go, William, William Powell. William Powell is two and two on the day. Right. Okay, that brings us to our number six seed, A Tale of Two Cities, an adaptation of the Dickens novel, stars Ronald Coleman, 
Elizabeth Allen, and Donald Woods. It's directed by Jack Conway, written by W.P. Lipscomb and S.N. Behrman. It's nominated for two, and it won zero. And our nine seed is Doddsworth, a drama about a married couple who drift apart in retirement. It stars Walter Houston, Ruth Chatterton, and Mary Astor. It was directed by William Wyler and written by Sidney Howard. Nominated for seven, it won one Best Art Direction. One, one two, two, three, three. A Tale Dodsworth? of Two Cities. Oh my gosh, so much disagreement. <laughs> two whole disagreements. What are we going to do about this? All right. Would you like to go first? Sure. I thought both of these movies had redeeming qualities and some issues. I thought that I had never, I didn't know anything about A Tale of Two Cities. I guess I'll preface with that. I didn't know what it was going to be about. I All I knew was were the two most famous quotes from it. Yeah. And I did end up enjoying it. I thought the performances were good. I really liked Ronald Coleman and I found it emotionally affecting. And then Dodsworth, I enjoyed in parts and then it sort of wore on the wife became very annoying to me the way she was written and so then I struggled to enjoy it as much as I got closer to the end of the movie but I did enjoy actually both of these movies what are your thoughts so I was surprised how much I liked Dodsworth I thought it was a fairly interesting drama for the time about this married couple sort of drifting apart I agree like the wife character is Kind of irritating, but I really liked Walter Houston in it, and I thought he was the, great. The direction was quite good. Like I liked some of the shots that William Wyler chose. And William Wyler is great, so I enjoyed the like the filmmaking component of it. And similarly, I did not know what a tale of two cities was about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and while I think it was you know well made, and maybe this is more an issue of the source material, again, like the politics get weird in it towards the end where they're like really the villains are these poor people because they're too yeah. vicious and you're like it started so sure strong with that. its politics and then it took a weird turn at the end i agree with and, that and again like maybe that's the source material and it just sort of is what it is but i don't know that the the end of it really worked for me and emotionally i guess i never thought through what the sacrifice in a tale of two cities was because i don't know what it's about but like right. the fact that, that was it i was like oh Okay. Oh, see, the sacrifice really worked for me. Oh, he had okay. me crying at the end, Ronald. Yeah, Coleman. no, I was like, okay. Weird. <laughs> but we can talk about Dodsworth this time. Yeah, That's fine. Uh, it's, I'm mixed on it anyway. And then finally, <laughs> we have our seventh seed, San Francisco, a disaster film about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. This stars Clark Gable, Jeanette McDonald, and Spencer Tracy. It's directed by W.S. Van Dyke. Written by Robert E. Hopkins and Anita Luce. It's nominated for six, and it won one. Best Sound Recording. Hmm. And our eight seed, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, a small town uh, about a small town man who unexpectedly inherits a large fortune. It stars Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur. It was directed by Frank Capra and written by Robert Riskin. Nominated for five, it won one. Best Director, Frank Capra. Okay. One, one. two... two. Three, Mr. Mr. Deeds goes, goes to, town. to town. Great. All right. Um, okay, so that leads us with our seven losers for this episode. Damn, that's a lot of losers. <laughs> Anthony Adverse, The Great Ziegfeld, Romeo and Juliet, My Man Godfrey, Swing Time, Dodsworth, and San Francisco. Should we talk about them in this order, leaving The Great Ziegfeld for the end, just to honor the winner? 
That sounds correct to me. Okay. Can I have you talk about Anthony Adverse? Because there's a lot of plot and I watched it three weeks ago. and I know I'm going to butcher it. Okay. So the plot of Anthony Adverse is we start with a couple and the woman is the daughter of a wealthy merchant and the husband is, I think, like a lord, but he's broke, I guess. And so he's married this woman to, like, regain his fortune, but he doesn't like her. And she's in love with this other dude. And he finds out that she's in love with this other dude and decides to take vengeance on her because she's hurt his pride or something. Mm-hmm. And so he, like, kidnaps her away from this other guy who she was going to run away with, impregnates her up in a mountain villa removed from everyone. She dies during childbirth. I thought she was already pregnant. I thought she got pregnant with the guy she loved. And then that was part of why he ushered her away. Was I just reading that incorrectly? I don't remember that, but it's possible. (laughs) Anyway, she's pregnant. She's pregnant. She has the baby. She dies during childbirth. The guy takes the baby and gives it up to a nunnery. This kid is now an orphan. He doesn't leave any indication of who the kid's parents are. And he tells the grandfather that the baby's dead. Yeah, he tells the the wealthy merchant that the wife is dead, the baby's dead, no heirs. The kid is raised by the, you know, the priest and the nuns, but eventually he gets too old and they're like, this kid can't live with all these girls. It's really a school for girls. And they're like, he really shouldn't be here at all. Mm-hmm. We can't keep him. So they end up getting him a position with the wealthy merchant, coincidentally. Oh my gosh, what his, are the odds? And the wealthy merchant sees him and immediately re- realizes like, this kid looks exactly like my dead daughter. Mm-hmm. Weird. And so anyway, he then takes on, you know, raising this kid. The kid becomes his really good apprentice. He's, you know, a nice young man. He works hard. He's good at his job. And he falls in love with another servant girl who lives there. But she's like, we could never get married. Your benefactor wouldn't allow it. I'm just a servant girl. Yeah. But he's really in love with her. And so they end up getting married. In a secret ceremony. In a secret ceremony. And he's going to go off to be with her. But then his benefactor is like, we're in financial trouble. I can't get the Cubans to pay my debt back. I need you to go to Cuba and figure out what's going on and get me my money. And he's like, okay, but I'll take my wife. And he's like, what? And she's like, I'm married so-and-so. I forget her name. Yeah. And, and so I think the benefactor's like, okay, fine. I mean, yeah, you're the married. Benefactor's like, well, if you're married, what am I going to do? But he misses the chance to go like grab her and tell her like, hey, I got to go to Cuba. And so she goes off with her musical yeah. troupe and they sort but, of lose touch with each other. Well, she left him a note that blows away and he doesn't get the note telling him where she has gone. So he goes to Cuba and he's has a hard time getting the money back from these people because they've maybe gone bankrupt or something. And he meets and befriends a priest while he's there. And in the end, he decides the only way for me to make this money back for my benefactors, I've got to go to Africa and trade slaves. And the priest is like, I'll I'll come with you and try to save your soul. It'll destroy your soul if you trade slaves, but I'll try to protect you. Uh And so anyway, they go to Africa and he's a very successful slave trader. And while he's there, it does darken his heart and he becomes cruel and drunk. And, you know, the woman's never written to him because he doesn't realize that she doesn't know where he is and he doesn't know where she is. Right. She might be dead for all he knows. And he kind of falls into the clutches of these people who are happy to live off you know his teat as he's making all this money even though it's destroying his soul Mm. and so eventually like i think like something happens to the priest and he's like i gotta get out of here 
And so he's made enough money to go back and pay back his benefactor. He moves back to Italy. The benefactor's shop has closed down because of the Napoleonic Wars. And I guess it's then that he realizes the guy has died and he has inherited all of his stuff. Yeah, they've been looking for him. Yeah. And when he arrives, his like cab driver's like, we're all looking for this Anthony Adverse guy to find the money. Who could it be? Right. <laughs> it's like... And meanwhile, the the wealthy benefactor had this housekeeper who's like, if we don't find him, I'm going to inherit all the stuff. And she's in cahoots with the evil guy who had married the daughter. They're they're in cahoots together to sort of fleece this wealthy benefactor. But then Anthony comes back and he's like, oh, great. I've got all this money. He runs into his old friend who he was friends with, you know, before all this happened. And they're like, let's all go to France together or London. Oh, Let's all go to a different European country and city together. And while they're there, oh, no, it's France because it's it's Napoleon. It's Napoleon. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it's Napoleon's mission. They go to Paris together and they hear that there's this great new opera singer that everyone's very interested in. And it turns out it's it's his wife. It's the woman he's married. And But everyone has been saying that she has gotten ahead because Napoleon favors her. And so, like, what's she been doing with Napoleon? Mm, Questionable. And so he realizes that his wife is in town. He goes and meets her. She's had his child. Yep. So they have a son together, but he doesn't, he hasn't put together yet that she is the opera singer. They're going, they're like, we're going to be together. The kid falls in love with him immediately. He's like, I love this kid. I'm so happy. We're going to live together happily. And then he goes to the opera and he realizes it's his wife who's the opera singer. And he's like, oh no, she's a whore. And then, so they can't be together because I guess shame. (laughs) And so she runs off and she's like, you take care of our son. And the movie ends with him and the son going to America together. And I think that's mostly what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, You got it, I think. Okay. What a movie. Huh? I To me, it was just like a series of events that I didn't care about was this entire movie. I mean, the, you're never really invested in the character. And so then it's stuff just keeps happening. And then you're like, okay, who cares? He loves his girl, whatever. They're married, whatever. Oh, they missed each other. All of a sudden, he's a slave trader. And you're like, well, I don't know how we got here. Like... <laughs> I'm not on board with whatever's happening in this situation. And then the end I find just ridiculous where she like abandons her son to him for what? The shame of being shame. discovered. Like it was super fucked. I don't know. It it was just whatever. It didn't work for me. Anthony Adverse. I, I did read someone saying in the book that it's based on it's more about like a spiritual journey it gets very christian by the end and so it's about you know sin and redemption and all of that and so it's a whole arc that they mostly cut out to make it less christian even though there's plenty of the priest friend or whatever (laughs) maybe it, it does suffer from his arc not having its full conclusion because the whatever's going on with him while he's in africa is just not tracking at all how he becomes a horrible person when he was so nice and then all of a sudden how slave trading will corrupt your soul man yeah but like why is he slave trading (laughs) he was he was a nice person (laughs) like what are we doing i don't understand like in in cuba he saves the priest guy he's supposed to be like a sign that he's really nice and then he's like i guess i got a slave trade and you're like i don't think that follows like I, it's hard for me to imagine How the scenario gonna make any money <sighs> i don't know man it was very no, it was, it was a leap it was a leap 
so yeah, I don't. How did you feel about this movie? I didn't hate it. I thought there was some interesting stuff in it. I still like Frederick. Yeah, you're a Frederick fan. Very, very sad when he became a slave trader. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I thought Claude Rains's performance was hilarious. When is Claude Rains's performance not hilarious? I really enjoyed him. He's super over the top. I love the scene where they're racing to get to Paris to like say who should get the money. And Claude Rains and the woman are trying to kill Anthony by like running him off a mountain. But then mm-hmm. his carriage tricked them. And the, I love the miniature of the horse carriage going over the mountain. Yeah, that was pretty fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I think it's hard to like key into the character of Anthony in a real way. You know, the back and forth with his beloved is, is not the most compelling. I mean, I feel yeah. like they're sweet enough when you first meet them and they're friends. You're like, sure, this is fine. I didn't, it's not like I couldn't believe that they liked each other, but also sure. there's so little to it that you're like, okay. <laughs> like, and then the, you know, the miscommunications and stuff are so like, ugh, like, all right, the note blew away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, this movie is extremely hard to find also. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that anyone should run out and do the legwork to try to locate it. No. Like, if you could, like, there was, like, a super cut of Claude Rains in it, I think you should watch (laughs) Yeah, check YouTube to see if there's any of that. Maybe I should do that since I have it. (laughs) Yeah, I have three notes. My notes are Claude Rains' performance was insane. Mm -hmm. Loved the miniature when the horse-drawn carriage went off the cliff. Mm -hmm. And then my last note was... Was that woman in Africa who's part of the team that's controlling him supposed to be black? I think yes. That's my guess. (laughs) (laughs) It was not super clear. But her wig was quite just like wavy. So I was like. Hard to say, but I do think yes. And I do think that's part of the like racist, you know, corruption added to the list of movies this year with blackface in it there's so much blackface coming guys whoa get ready for a lot of blackface conversation points to count this one as a blackface movie then if that woman was in fact supposed to be black a little vague not your classic blackface well and it's different it's different for it to be like blackface character acting in the movie or like minstrel show which is what we're (laughs) coming up against you know, those are all my notes. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I got nothing else to say about this. I did. It didn't work for me. If you like the story, maybe it'll work for you. It's not my type of movie anyway, but it was sort of nothing about it stood out to me as particularly memorable. Not even Claude Rains' performance? <laughs> I mean, Claude Rains is always memorable as Claude Rains, but specifically for this movie, meh. When he finds out his wife has died in childbirth, he laughs so hard. <laughs> Well, he's happy about it. He's really happy about it. It's a choice. Okay. That brings us to our next loser, Romeo and Juliet. You can take this one. Yeah, I will keep this very brief because if you haven't seen any version of Romeo and Juliet, I don't know what the fuck's going on with you. But it's a straightforward adaptation of the Shakespeare play. Romeo and Juliet are supposed to be young people (laughs) who meet each other and immediately fall in love. Their families hate each other. And so they secretly get married and then conflict between the family escalates romeo ends up killing someone from the other side of the family and or the other family sorry and is expelled from verona the two of them need to find a way to run away together and so she is given a some sort of potion potion yeah that will make it seem like she's dead 
they send a message to Romeo that they're doing this, but it doesn't ever get to him. So he finds out or he hears that she is dead. He comes to see her. She's dead. He kills himself. She wakes up. She sees he's dead. She kills herself. That's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, like you said, it's a relatively straightforward adaptation. Obviously, they cut some things, but I think the things they cut weren't huge losses. Everyone's just too old. Yeah, they're shockingly old people. I don't know what the hell is going on in this movie, but a hugely important part of the storytelling of Romeo and Juliet is how young they are. Juliet is like 14. Romeo is supposed to be, I don't know, like 16 or 17 or something. Like They're supposed to be very young, which explains all of their (laughs) decision-making. And also, they're supposed to be sort of these, like, naive, innocent figures that are destroyed by this feud between the families that is stupid. And the point of the whole story is the feud is stupid. And look at these young kids that died because of it. And then instead of that, you get, like, a 40-something-year-old Romeo, a 30-something-year-old Juliet. And you're like, what is even happening in this story? (laughs) This was Irving Thalberg's last film that he produced. And the backstory is that Norma Shearer, his wife at the time, really, really wanted to play Juliet. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, okay. But yes, she's 35, which is too old. And then reasonably, they didn't cast an actual teenage boy against her, which is probably That'd be wild. (laughs) And so, yes, it's like 43-year-old Leslie Howard. And then just to cherry on top it, his cousin Mercutio, who's also a young man, is played by a 54-year-old John Barrymore in, again, an insane (laughs) performance. And you're like, what is this? The retirement home production of Romeo and Juliet? I don't understand what's going on. It's bizarre. Like, again, it's fine. It's just the casting is absurd. The casting is absurd. Some of the performances are not amazing. It's the sort of hit or miss. The Romeo and Juliet are mostly fine. I I mean, my main takeaway is like, it's a fucking majestic script. The dialogue is amazing. It's maybe my favorite dialogue from any Shakespeare play. But you're left just being like, this production specifically, it's weird. <laughs> it's like a weird choices all around. Great writing, strange movie. Yeah. That's it. I think that's the whole thing. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to My Man Godfrey? Sure. My Man Godfrey, one of our four William Powells. It starts off with our man, Godfrey. Mm-hmm. He's what they call in the film a forgotten man, but he's homeless. He's living down at the... at The, the docks. Like, the docks. It's like a, like a dump, kind of. At like the, a trash dump. Yeah. And these wealthy women roll up on him at his his little shack. And they're like, oh, we're doing a scavenger hunt. We need a forgotten man. Will you come with us? And he's like, no. (laughs) But then one of the two women is like, oh, my sister always wins these things. And I want to show her up. And he's decided he really hates the older sister. So he's like, all right, we'll win this for you. That'll be funny. And so she brings him back to where like the headquarters of the scavenger hunt is and everyone's getting all kinds of weird stuff someone had to find like a goat you know whatever and she's like i got him i got a forgotten man and they make him stand up on a table and say that he is in fact a forgotten man he has to prove it and through a series of events after that happens they hire him on as their family butler they have a very hard time keeping a butler because the family is crazy and so the butlers keep quitting and he starts off in his, that role and he decides he's just going to be the best butler ever. 
the young daughter is in love with him. So she's chasing him constantly. And he's not particularly like interested. He's like, I'm butling. I'm, yeah, I'm in the middle of butling. Yeah. Can you please leave me alone? And so that's sort of a portion of the movie. And then it's revealed that he's actually from a very prominent Boston family. This is taking place in New York. And he, you know, went to Harvard. And then one day he just straight disappeared. And the family's been saying like he's in South America. And so he runs into this old chum from Harvard. And he explains that the woman broke his heart. And he just couldn't, he just couldn't go on. And so he doesn't want to embarrass his family. So he's pretending to be this other guy. And he ends up deciding that with the help of his old Harvard chum, that what he's really going to do is take his earnings from buttling and help all the forgotten men down by the docks. So, you know, he invests it and he's able to like create a nightclub that gets them all jobs. And also at the end, he has fallen in love with the younger daughter and they get together. And I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. The end beat where he has fallen in love with the daughter was very strange to me. (laughs) I was like, I didn't see any of the process of him falling in love with her, but sure. I guess they're getting married now. This was an interesting one. As we said, it's clearly about class things, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's during the Great Depression. It's about rich people, unemployed people, what goes on between the two of them, that sort of like... Also, what responsibility do rich people have to the less fortunate is a part of this conversation. And so there's a lot to like read into what's going on with this movie. At first, I really liked the how they were treating the rich family. They're like super absurd. The sort of satire around what this rich family gets up to was very funny. And his reaction to it and him coming in as this unemployed guy and being like, much more capable and normal than all of them was cool. And then while the twist that he was actually rich did, I thought, play well, I liked the scene when his friend showed up and the way that they worked that out, it undercut most of what was going on with the movie to me. The fact that it was then like, no, it's actually only a movie about rich people because why would we care to make a movie about the perspective of poor people (laughs) was, was not a great turn. So then it becomes kind of strange because it's nice that he helps all of his friends from when he lived out in the dump, but he does it in this weird way where they make the club for rich people that they can all be waiters at, which is like, I guess, okay, maybe. And then he also does this huge favor for the rich people and saves their entire fortune. And you're like, why'd you do that? Really? He and the dad do kind of get along, but everyone else in the family is so absurd and ridiculous. And they just spend money like there's no tomorrow. And the dad has eventually lost the money because he can't keep up with their spending habits. And then all of a sudden, Godfrey is like, actually, I took this piece of jewelry and I invested the money from it. And I made back your entire fortune from investing wisely. And here you go. It's all the money you lost. And you're like, why yeah <laughs> like i don't really some of the things that happened at the end i was like i don't know about this so i thought it started pretty strong and then meandered from the middle to the end was how i felt about it yeah i mean i liked the beginning of this movie but yeah there are elements of that didn't work like the love story mm-hmm. didn't work for me and then you want there to be some real comeuppance for these rich people, especially because at the beginning, like this idea of a scavenger hunt where you have to find a human being is yeah, it so was, gross. That I thought was awesome. Like the writing of that was like, wow, like 
yeah. these people are sick <laughs> and they're really putting it right there on screen. And then it didn't pay off that stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the twist that, you know, this is just a rich person slumming it, but still, of course he's rich. So he's, yeah. he knows best and he knows what to do. Right. And you're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's exactly how I felt about it. I was because in the moment, the scene when you reveal that he's rich, I thought was very funny and good. I liked his Oh, when friend. the Harvard man comes to the party and they're sort of playing like, oh, you know, oh, I And I he's like, just, just roll with it. I was your butler. And the guy's like, no, okay, was he was scene. my butler. Like, it was a great scene. But then as soon as that has happened and they get to the scene of him explaining like, oh, I had a horrible breakup and I lost my way and I just couldn't go on anymore. I lost faith in everything. I decided to go be a poor person. You're like, okay. <laughs> like, that's... I don't love that. And then the fact that he was like, I'll just use all of my rich person wisdom to fix everything. I was like, mm. right. Yeah. And then the fact that at the end, it ends happily for all of the, the, all rich, the rich people. people. Well, yeah. Like the older sister has tried to accuse him of stealing and they also end on happy terms. And she you're like, planted she a necklace work. on him and to, to, to get him arrested. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's fucked. No, I don't. I don't want a happy ending for her. No. I, Younger sister is bananas. I, I again, like I, some of her scenes, very funny. Yes, but then but, the fact that it was like, oh, I guess I am in love with you at the end. You're like, what? No, <laughs> no thank you. So yeah, it had a lot of really good things. Uh, one of them being William Powell. William Powell is excellent, as William Powell always is. And and oh, we haven't talked about him, but the guy who was nominated for best supporting actor from this movie is this character who is sort of like Carlo. the. Cap- Carlo, the kept man of the rich mother. And so she has this guy that just lives with them. And supposedly he's like composing some sort of piano piece and she's supporting him because he's going to be an important artist someday. But really he just like lazes around and eats their food. He's actually pretty great. (laughs) I do love him. I loved Carlo, but yeah, it doesn't come together in the end in a way that I found satisfying. The ending wasn't satisfying to me for how horrible these people were Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I don't know that they've learned anything. No. Okay. So that's my man, Godfrey. <laughs> my man, Godfrey. That brings us to swing time. Tell me what happens in swing time. So in swing time, we have Fred Astaire is this guy in a small time dance troupe, basically. And he... It's a traveling troupe. They've gone back to his hometown and he's fallen in love with a girl in his hometown and decided he wants to marry her, quit the dance troupe and become a gambler, which they treat as like a very normal career path to have all throughout this movie. And so his dancing troupe is having none of that. So they sabotage his wedding and make it so that he doesn't get there on time. And now her father, who already was not a big fan of him, is like, you can't marry my daughter. You're some nobody with no money and no success. And why should I let you marry her? And he's like, you know what? I actually am on to the next big thing. I'm about to go make tons of money with my new venture. And the father, he's like, I'm going to make $25,000. And the father's like, well, if you make $25,000, then come back and see me. And maybe you can marry my daughter. So he sets off to go to New York with his, who is the guy that he takes? <laughs> at the beginning, like his friend. Yeah, but it seems at the beginning like he's sort of like in charge of the dance troupe, but then really he's more of like a sidekick guy. Yeah, he's his friend. So yeah, his friend is like, I'm coming with you to New York. And so his friend comes. They go to New York and he arrives there with 
nothing because the money that he had won off all of his friends, they take back and then they send him right on to the train. He shows up in New York with no money and he's like, all right, I got to get some something going. And then, of course, he immediately meets a pretty lady uh, mm-hmm. on the streets of New York who they he needs to, like, make change to buy cigarettes for the friend. And he gets the money from her. And then there's, like, some hijinks where the friend accidentally ends up stealing the dollar back from her. And she's really mad. And so he wants to make amends with her. He follows her into her work where she happens to be a dance instructor. Wouldn't you know? dance instructor and he's a dancer match made in heaven so he's still trying to win her over and so he signs up for a free dance lesson he pretends he can't dance then he almost accidentally gets her fired and then he's like no wait she's actually a great instructor and then they do a a dance routine and and it's fred astaire and ginger rogers and you're like that's a dance routine isn't it then she is interested in him and she's like we're gonna go to this audition you have to show up in fancy dress and he's like okay i definitely will do that even though he has no clothes And then he ends up not being able to come up with a suit. She's really mad about it. And then there's sort of this back and forth of him trying to win her back over. She's still mad at him, but they have this great chemistry. And eventually she does end up liking him after he like buys the contract of a guy who plays the music so that they can dance at the club. A whole bunch of shit happens. He ends up, they're sort of courting each other. They're dancing. He is making a lot of money gambling because he also happens to be a great gambler. And it's this tightrope walk that he's doing where he feels like if he makes the $25,000, he then has to go back home to marry the girl. So he doesn't want to make that much money. And he's romancing the girl, but he doesn't want to like actually kiss her or anything because he also has the woman back home that he's supposed to marry. And so they're tiptoeing around each other the length of the thing. Eventually... The woman from back home shows up. It turns out she doesn't want to marry him anyway. (laughs) And so he totally gets out of it. And then the woman who he should marry, who has now angrily decided to marry someone else, luckily before that ends up happening, he explains the whole situation. He doesn't have to marry this other woman. The two of them can be together and everything is happy. And in the middle of that, there's a huge blackface number that we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah, I was like, do we start with the elephant in the room? <laughs> um, okay, let's 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 table the blackface, I guess. Sure. If we table the blackface, mm-hmm. this movie's a lot of fun. It's pretty I fun. thought it was very entertaining throughout. I thought the comedy of it worked. I thought the you know relationship between Astaire and Rogers worked. The dancing was obviously incredible. Yeah, it's Astaire and Rogers. What are you gonna do? Yeah. It was a cute little movie. But then, yes, there's a part in the middle where Fred Astaire does this blackface number. And you're like, Fred, why? 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 And it's like so long and extended. It's this like five minute Bojangle song. And you're like, why is is this happening? (laughs) It starts with this very dramatic giant face made out of shoes that then become these huge legs that he's wearing and and then he does like a blackface tap dance song number and you're like yikes (laughs) this is really rough my note about it is blackface jump scare which has become the way that i yeah knowing this it's a blackface jump scare oh boy yeah so there's also there's also something a little disappointing right that this is the one on the afi top 100 list Mm -hmm. 
Like, pick a different establishment. AFI always likes to pick super racist things and be like, but they're really important. Yeah, but it's not like it's the only <laughs> Astaire and Rogers film. Pick I'm sure that it's, one. like, important because it's, you know, the first one of something that did something. But, like, who gives a shit? I don't think so. I don't know enough to say. I just know that's usually how they do their yeah. justifying I, putting the super I think they need to select on. a different one that doesn't include an extended blackface number. Because I think they need to stop institutionalizing mm-hmm. blackface. But, yeah, I mean, if you can stomach that... It's pretty enjoyable. I like his lackey and her yeah. like assistant and their yeah. relationship too. They were fun together. You know, it's a it's not it's like a cool what like it's really hundred minutes. It was like yeah, ninety to a hundred minutes. Yeah. There are fun um, little bits. I, I really liked when yeah. he's trying to win her back over and he's picketing outside of her apartment door. Yeah. <laughs> that was very okay. funny. There's a lot of good bits. There's a lot of good dances. You're just like, why, why, why did this part have to be in here? I mean. It has its issues. For me, the resolution is kind of strange. And and his conflict isn't described very well to me. All of a sudden, he's like romancing this new girl. And you're like, all right, maybe he's forgotten about the old girl. And then there are scenes where he's saying why he can't win $25,000. And I'm like, if you don't want to marry that girl, why just don't? You didn't sign a contract that you'd come back and marry her. (laughs) I don't really understand. It feels like you should. Yeah, but like. Does he love her anymore? Like, what's going on with him emotionally? I feel like it's hard to track, but it's a a little comedy, so I don't expect that much from it. I will also say, so at the beginning of the film, one of the ways that the people he works with make him late to his wedding is they trick him into thinking that he needs to get cuffs in his wedding pants by drawing them in a fashion magazine. And then they take the pants to get cuffed. And then the tailor's like, there's no cuffs in these pants. We don't cuff these pants. Mm -hmm. And so then at the end of the movie, when the guy who he doesn't want to marry, Ginger Rogers, is getting ready for the wedding, he does the same trick on him. And he and his friend are just laughing and laughing. It's It's very fun. It's good payoff, payoff, but also... The tone got really weird to me when they're laughing and laughing and everyone's laughing and laughing. And I was like, this turns like manic all of a sudden. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, but I'm laughing too. So it's okay. We're all laughing. We're all laughing. Okay. That brings us to our number nine seed, our fifth loser, Dodsworth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this movie is about a man who owns like a car company. And he sold it to a, a larger car maker. And so he's, you know, very wealthy. And now he's retired. He and his wife have raised their daughter. She's an adult. She's just gotten married. So they're done, right? They've done all the things yeah. that they need to do. And they're going to go on a multi-month European vacation to really figure out, you know, what retirement's going to look like for them. She's like, you need to slow down. You've been working hard for 20 years. You need to learn how to live. And I'm still a young woman. I think she was a a bit younger than him when they got married. And Mm -hmm. she's uh, very invested in, you know, the fact that like, I'm not old. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm still a young woman. She's still got so much life to live. Yes. And so they get on the boat and, you know, she immediately starts flirting with this young British guy. Well, her husband's kind of a dork. I think that's part of the problem, too, is Dodsworth is almost a little bit of a dork. He's excited when they get close to shore to see the lighthouse. She's dancing with the the British guy. He brings her up on deck and he's like, you got to see this lighthouse. I could get there in a speedboat in 35 minutes. And she's like, "Okay, whatever. I was having a good time. But... 
then, you know, she feels like the British guy's too fresh with her and she becomes very ashamed of how she's been flirting with him. And she tells her husband, like, let's not go to England. Let's skip England and go directly to Paris. And he's disappointed because he wanted to go to England. But he does it. And basically over the course of the movie, there is this ongoing conflict where like he's going out and sightseeing and he wants her to come with him and he wants her to meet him at a cafe for lunch. And she's like, no, I want to do these cool things. I want to be this wealthy woman who's it's still youthful and hanging out with all these European, you know, these high class Europeans. I don't want to be this backwards hick American with you who's just going to see the sights. I'm going to hang out with these counts. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they end up splitting so she's like i'm gonna stay here and with my friends you can go on to other parts of europe and like maybe i'll meet you back at home meanwhile on the boat he had also met this woman who's a divorcee who lives in italy full-time and they bonded a little bit so she seemed to be less bothered by the fact that he's a huge dork she's a dork too (laughs) yeah and she's like more grounded i think is the thing yeah and so he ends up going home by himself. You know, he's he's reconnected with his daughter. He's obviously very upset to be home without his wife and the sort of change in their relationship. And he sends a private detective after her to see what she's really up to. And he finds out that she's been staying with this this other European guy. And so he comes back to Europe to really see what's going on. He finds out that she's probably been having an affair and he's like, okay, we should get divorced. And she's like, no, wait, no, I don't want to get divorced. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'll I'll never do it again. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to continue to travel Europe and see more sites. And in a couple months, if you still don't want to get divorced, fine, we won't. And if you do, fine. So I'm going to stick around in Europe until you make a decision. And meanwhile, she's, she's been courting this much younger man and at one point she meets his mother and his mother's like, he can't marry you. Like, I'm not going to allow it. You're too old. Like, you can't have any children. <laughs> you can't have any children. Like, I'm, it's not going to happen. And so I think she has a bit of a, a revelation. He, meanwhile, has run again into the divorcee in Italy and he's been hanging out with her and they've been having a great time. They've been fishing and just hanging out and he's fallen in love with her and he's like, you know what we should do? I'm going to get into the plane industry. I was doing cars, but I love working on motors. I'm going to get into planes. We're going to set up a transatlantic or around the world plane routes. You're going to come with me, even if you're only bringing one seat. And she's like, that sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to come with you. But then the wife calls and she's like, oh, I don't really want a divorce. I've changed my mind. So he leaves, he's going to sail back with her to America, but then she's like completely unapologetic about the fact that she spent the last six months just flirting with other dudes and spending time with other dudes in Europe. And And he's trying to marry other dudes. (laughs) Yeah. And he's finally like, you know what? This isn't for me. This is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. Yeah. And so he leaves her on the boat and goes back to the the divorcee in Italy. Dodsworth. Dodsworth. I thought this was a pretty interesting movie. I really, really liked Dodsworth, <laughs> the guy. His main, the main guy's performance was fantastic, and it's sort of just an interesting premise. I feel like it's a thing that you don't see a lot in these '30s movies. That's about. It's kind of what I would think of later as being an adult drama, right? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. do it in that way because it's the '30s. But this is yeah. the sort of movie that they would have made in the '70s about people at the end of their lives finding out if they really still love their partners and like them growing apart and that sort of thing i thought it was really interesting premise and there were you know funny scenes that i enjoyed i liked that he ended up 
finding this other woman and realizing they were much more compatible and ending up with her. That was great. I just, the way that the wife was written became like untenable for me. <laughs> like at mm. first it's very funny. I love when she's first being like, American tourists are so annoying. And you're like, oh God, <laughs> like just the way that she's handling herself and her ideas about what it, how she will make herself be cool and European and not American and crass were funny, but just so much of the back and forth and like she had multiple guys where she was like I'm gonna be with this guy oh wait never mind I'm not gonna be with this guy because I want to be with my husband okay I'm gonna be with this guy oh wait never mind I'm not gonna be with this guy and it just like maybe there were one or one too many of those relationships for me and so it just it wore on me by the end but I for the most part I did really like it but when he leaves her at the end I was like thank fucking god because <laughs> she's satisfying Angie. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the way that she was yelling at him at the end was was quite interesting. She's yeah. sort of screaming at him as he's jumping ship. Literally, he's, he's jumping yeah. ship. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought this movie was really interesting. Again, it, probably especially for the times. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've seen Walter Houston in anything before, but I, I really enjoyed him. I really liked his performance. And yeah, I thought... The wife character does get interesting, but like the thing that she's struggling with, like her lost youth, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, like Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, right? Where she's just, she's just kind of throwing herself into these things very emotionally, obviously, because Mm -hmm. she's like, I'm not old. And there's these little details that come up where you're like, oh, wow, she's like really struggling. So the daughter has a child and initially she's very excited. And then he's like, we should call and yeah. say hi from grandma and grandpa. And she realizes like she's a grandmother and it, it hits and then her she, and won't she can't call. deal with it. Yeah. She won't talk to her daughter and acknowledge the fact that she's a grandmother. And, you know, I thought the scene with the, the mother of her beau who's like, you're just too old. I thought it was interesting. I think there's interesting moments. Yeah. And similarly, like – when he goes back home and he's complaining about how all the stuff in their house has been moved and how, you know, your mother always had things like this and your mother always had things like this. I thought it was interesting because you realize like he doesn't really know her, but she was playing a role that whole time. And in some ways she's sort of, you know, still trying to play this role of like, oh, I'm, I'm actually very cultured and European or, oh, I'm actually this or that. Mm-hmm. Whether or not by the end she's learned anything about herself I think is a real question but he he certainly has and so yeah I thought I thought there were just a lot of interesting details in some of the scenes and it was fairly interesting throughout and then yeah I thought William Wyler's direction was gorgeous gorgeous William Wyler knows what he's doing (laughs) I think maybe there's something really interesting to this woman who was like I married you young I raised your kid I kept your house I gave up my entire life to support you which is like tons of women throughout history right Mm -hmm. and and her being like okay now it's time now it's now it's my time or at least at the beginning now it's our time to like find ourselves and live our lives as a couple and and have that and figure out what it is that I want from life what it is that I maybe feel like I missed and always wanted to do and I think that starting point is super interesting and great and then Part of the trouble for me was that it never went anywhere other than like what I missed was the opportunity to have rich young men flirt with me. And I was like, does she have no other internal life? Like, is there nothing else she ever wanted to do with her time? Maybe not, but that's not, you know, yeah, I don't connect to that. 
I think the movie is certainly more his story than yes. her story. And in the end, right, she is just a very frivolous person. It's not only like I want rich young men to flirt with me, but it is the whole thing of like, oh, I don't want to be seen as a backwards American. I'm cultured, right? That's a very frivolous way of viewing the world as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, whether or not that's, you know, as successful as she was a more a richer character, I guess, is a, a question. But it, uh, yeah, it is more his story than her story, definitely at the end. Mm hmm. But interesting. More interesting than I expected, Dodsworth. Yeah, especially from the title. You don't see the title Dodsworth and be like, what's that going to be? This is not what I thought it would be. I don't know what I thought it would be, but this wasn't it. Yeah, I didn't have any thoughts because Dodsworth doesn't really tell you anything. Of course. Dodsworth. Dodsworth. (laughs) Okay. That brings us to San Francisco. Tell me about San San Francisco. Francisco. Okay, so... San Francisco, pre-1906 earthquake, (laughs) we enter on this group of people. It's, I'm gonna, I feel like, here's what's going to be weird. I feel like it's so similar to an old Chicago, I'm going to mix up parts of the story. (laughs) So, yeah, well, you know, broad strokes it. Don't get get lost in the details. Yeah, there's a, a guy who runs a club like a mm-hmm. you know place where performances kind of club happens and he's a man about town fun timesy guy and he finds this singer that he really likes and decides that she presents herself to him but she sings and then he's like i gotta have this singer so he signs her to a contract she's really supposed to be an opera singer her voice is like not nightclub style but he's like we'll make it work and so he signs her into a contract and then she starts singing in the club and meanwhile he has these there's like a guy that's his rival and he runs his own thing he's another rich guy they don't get along there's a thing going on about running for what is this board of whatever superiors supervisors yeah So his friends convince him to run for the board of supervisors because they live on this in this part of San Francisco called the Barbary Coast, where all of the construction is really shitty. It's poor people that live there. There have been a bunch of fires. And so they're like, we need to get up our safety standards. Someone should go run for this and speak for the Barbary Coast. And so... This other rich guy who's his rival doesn't like that he's running for this office. He shows up at the nightclub one time and he sees the girl sing and he happens to be a contributor to the San Francisco opera. And he's like, we gotta get this woman. And meanwhile, our main guy is like, I have her under contract, so you can't. And she feels very beholden to him because he helped her out of a bad situation. So she's like, that's fine. I'm in contract. I'll just stay here and work in the nightclub. And things progress. The two of them have like chemistry and end up falling in love with each other even though he never saw himself as someone who would settle down his best friend is this priest who's played by Spencer Tracy who they have kind of an unconventional relationship because they grew up together as kids and Spencer Tracy's always trying he like thinks he's a good person even though he runs the nightclub and it's around he's an atheist he's an atheist (laughs) so he keeps trying to bring him over into the light side and he ends up being friends with the opera singer girl because she goes over and sings at the church all the time and so the two of them fall in love and he they're gonna get married and something she like sees people talking about their relationship and decides i can't do this like this is not the life i saw for myself so she runs away to the opera (laughs) And 
she starts singing in the opera. He goes to see her. She's amazing. Everyone mm-hmm. loves her. And there's this moment of like, clearly, this is what she was born to do. And he's so happy for her that she's great. And then he's like, you know what? I really love you. You are amazing. We should get married. And she's like, oh, my God, absolutely. We should get married. I love you, too. And then it turns out his vision of them getting married is she leaves the opera and comes back to work at the nightclub. And you're like, you haven't learned any lessons at all, my guy. And (laughs) so Spencer Tracy is really mad that he's going to take her away from the opera, even though it's her purpose to be there. And so he punches Spencer Tracy. That's not why Spencer Tracy's upset. He's upset because he's dressing her up in risque clothing. Yes. We have to get into that because there's a lot of conversation about how he's like making her work in this sinful place. And it's not great. I don't think it has anything to do with the opera. I think it's because... She's tarted up. Well, it's about the opera in that the opera is respectable and Christian and the nightclub is not respectable and full of sin. Um, And so they have a falling out and she ends up after he punches Spencer Tracy deciding like, I can't be with this guy. He punched a priest. (laughs) So she and Spencer Tracy leave together and then they're in a fight. She's back with the opera guy. She's going to marry this rich guy who runs the opera for some reason. And things are going poorly for our main guy. The club is going to get shut down because the, you know, the rich guy doesn't like him and he's working with the police. And so right when all of this is happening, there's a big performance. She performs on behalf of his nightclub. And then he's mad that she did because they're in a fight. And then they've had this blow up fight. They're leaving each other. And the earthquake happens. Oh, my God. And it's real serious, man. Everything goes wrong. They get separated. A bunch of people die, obviously. And then he wanders around the streets of San Francisco for like two days trying to find her. He eventually finds Spencer Tracy and realizes that she is alive. And then all of a sudden, he's not an atheist. And he thanks God that she's alive. (laughs) And they all become happy little Christians together. And the entire town of San Francisco sings, oh, what the hell is the song about? Oh, the battle march of the Yeah, they the sing hymn? Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. They all march and sing. Yeah. The, yeah, the battle hymn of the Republic, which I thought was a weird choice, but whatever. But that's San Francisco. <laughs> that's San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, very similar to an old Chicago. It also made me think of Titanic, which like the the special effects on the earthquake were very cool. It was so it, good. The 20 minutes of this movie that was earthquake and just post-earthquake, stunning. <laughs> awesome. And then they've taken this cool short disaster movie intact, a very boring love story at the beginning. Very James Cameron Titanic. Yes. Right? Did James like, Cameron a- <laughs> make this movie? <laughs> well, maybe this is where he got Titanic from. He was like, the thing to do is you take a cool disaster movie mm-hmm. and you tack a boring love story at the beginning and that's the way it's done. It's classic Hollywood, baby. It's classic Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, my first note was like, this is a movie about a woman who can't make up her fucking mind. But she's going back and forth between Clark Gable and this opera dude so many times. And I was like, you know, he's a bad guy. Or so they say. We don't see him do anything that he's bad, He's not actually. really a bad guy. Like, the, the, the storytelling falls apart a little bit because 
I think you're supposed to go into this movie accepting that like the Christian thing is the right thing and the not Christian thing is the wrong thing, right? Like yeah. that's supposed He's to an be atheist. your right. calculus. But, but like that's obviously not how I enter the movie. So you never see him do anything bad for the most part. He seems like an okay person who has like different beliefs than his priest friend and doesn't believe in God. And you're like, that seems perfectly acceptable to me. And it's okay if he wants to run a nightclub. People can run nightclubs. That's cool. And I mean, the, this the conflict should be about him wanting to control this woman, right? Like her dream has always been to be in the opera. He should want that for her instead of wanting to keep her for his own purposes. And so then when she is in the opera and it's great and he sees her and then you expect him to be like, great, let's get married and you'll be in the opera and I'll run my nightclub. And instead he doesn't, you're like, oh, that's really fucked up. (laughs) This is not a great thing for their relationship. But yeah, you're right. Spencer Tracy shows up and is like, I can't believe that you would like tart this woman up like this. (laughs) Your future wife wear shorts. Yeah. (laughs) Let your future wife appear in this kind of attire. And you're like, but what about what she wants? Like, isn't the concern her dream is the opera? Let's support her dream. No, that's not anyone's concern. The concern is whether or not he's like damning her to a life in hell. So it fell apart (laughs) for me (laughs) in those scenes. Yeah, right. And then there's always the implication, too, with a movie like this, where, like, thank God this earthquake happened so Clark Gable could find his way to the Lord. Yeah, and you're like, what the fuck? So many people died. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was worth it. I will say, so you and I recently went to San Francisco on a vacation. And when they got to the earthquake part and they were like, we have to blow up Knob Hill, I was like, we learned about that. We did. Yeah, I loved the parts about them like blowing up the to make a firewall. Yeah. I was like, oh, we learned about this stuff. <laughs> this is incredible. So I enjoyed that. The, the history of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But I again, like because it made me think of Titanic, I had the same thought of, you know, when we talked about Titanic, I was like, what if the movie was about the people who made the ship and the people trying to save the ship from sinking? Wouldn't that be a better movie? Yeah. And similarly, like you could probably make a fascinating movie about the San Francisco earthquake that is about like, you know, the people actually blowing up Knob Hill and figuring out, like, we got to make a fire line. About the firefighters and stuff, right? Because you do yeah. see the firefighters very early in the movie and you're like, oh, like, what's it like firefighting in 1906? <laughs> like, that's right. its own interesting story. That could have been a very interesting movie. But instead, we got this back and forth with this opera singer. Mm-hmm. And then a very cool earthquake sequence. Yep. This is another movie where people were, oh, we, I guess we haven't talked about any yet, but we will. But he's punching people a lot. There's like no consequence punches. Happening oh, yeah, no, you can punch anyone. <laughs> Just punch anybody. He's like running for office and at his campaign event, he punches a guy. And I'm like, that seems ill-advised. Maybe punching wasn't assault at the time. Maybe. I Maybe the know. laws have changed. I did say to you, too, that the scene where he punches Spencer Tracy is edited together so poorly. It made me laugh so hard. So (laughs) Clark Gable punches Spencer Tracy, like, right hand across, right? So he sort of hits Spencer Tracy. Seemingly, it should be on, like, the right side of his face. But Spencer Tracy falls... Yeah, the left side of his face. But Spencer Tracy falls the wrong way. And then they also cut to the woman who looks wide-eyed. But, like, the cut is too long. And then they cut back to Spencer Tracy. He has this little trickle of blood coming down. And they cut back. I was like, this is is very poorly edited. Oh, man. They're still figuring it out. It's very funny. I do want to say 
the earthquake, like the the technology of the earthquake stuff is very, very cool. Obviously, yes. there's like s- streets falling apart and water pipes breaking and gushing out like it was the construction of it is incredible. But I mm-hmm. also felt and this also speaks to Titanic. The emotional weight of the post earthquake stuff was fucking great. Like as soon as oh, the earthquake yeah, with all happens, the secondary characters, there's all these characters see. in shock and it's just like quiet and people are sitting at tables in the nightclub, like just unsure what to fucking do about this. And like the, the he keeps running across random people we've never met who are trapped under rubble and like the emotional stuff that it is kind of like Titanic where all of a sudden yeah. these people you've never met, you're like, oh, my God, I really care about them. Who cares about the main people? <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. But I thought that whole like 20 minute sequence earthquake and post earthquake was excellent. Yeah. Watch that. Don't watch the first hour and a half or whatever. Of this One movie. hour and 33 minutes in is when the earthquake happened. I wrote it down. Yeah. Skip, skip the first hour 33. Get right to the earthquake business. Mm-hmm. Maybe Just cut it off it. before Clark Gable finds God. Yeah. You don't need the last again. like three minutes either. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a night for this woman. One hour, 33 minutes in the earthquake, 22 minutes left of the movie. So you mm-hmm. need probably 17 of those yeah. minutes. Yeah. Good short film. <laughs> I really liked his, or at least the idea of his friendship with the Spencer Tracy character, right? And these guys who were kids together and diverged mm-hmm. on these different paths, but still clearly really care about each other. And there are scenes where early on in the movie, Clark Gable's character has gifted the church a new organ or something. And so then there's a scene where Spencer calls him to be like, I wish you were here so I could give you a hug. And like, they seem very sweet. They really care about each other. And then (laughs) when they find each other after the earthquake, I was like, they got a hug or something, right? And they have this like handshake, like an intimate handshake. And I was like, man, men, the repression is too much. (laughs) you're the they're the most important people in each other's lives so they see each other thinking they were both dead and they're like well done chap (laughs) (laughs) oh boy yeah san francisco okay san francisco all right that brings us to the winner yeah great they held so this is a biopic of What's this for? Florenz. Florenz. I'm so sorry. Florenz Ziegfeld, who was like a theater producer around the turn of the century. So we start with him as like a carnival barker. He's got a strong man, Sandow, and they're struggling to attract an audience when faced with their rival who has a sexy lady. They have a, a belly dancer who's a sexy lady, and everyone wants to go Sex see the sexy sells, lady. Man. And doesn't want to see this strong man. Mm-hmm. But then our Flo realizes that, like, what if I turn my strong man into a sexy man? <laughs> and <laughs> it's very successful. So he pays, he gets people, women to, to pay to be able to feel his muscles. And mm-hmm. it just blows up. It, it's really good. Yep. And so I want to get into all the back and forth. But no, the movie is really happens, about yeah. him you know, trying to find stars and have successful shows. And he's constantly stealing performers from this guy who was his rival at the beginning, probably the most important of whom is the Louise Reiner character who becomes his, his first wife. But it continues on where like this guy will locate a, a young ingenue and he's like, I'm going to charm her and she's going to become mine. 
And eventually he comes up with the idea of putting together these, what are called the Ziegfeld Follies, which are these very elaborate stage shows with a bunch of beautiful women that he has, you know, found through star searches. So any woman in the country could become one of the, the girls. And you know, that, that's very attractive. And he gets the other guy to like go in on it with him. And they're successful a while, and then they're not successful, and then they're successful again, and he has these backs and forths with all these other women, and we're just sort of charting the course of his career, and it's very up and down. Eventually, he finds this young ingenue, and and she's got an alcohol problem, so things don't really work out with her, but before they part, she his wife catches him kissing her and so she divorces him and then he meets a new young ingenue billy and they end up getting married and they have a child and at the end he's up but then he loses all of his money in the stock market crash of 1929 and now he's down and his wife has to go back to work and he feels so badly and he gets ill and then he dies and it's a biopic and it's it's very up and down and episodic and what are your thoughts I actually ended up liking this movie a lot more than I expected because I had very mm-hmm. low expectations it's whenever three hours long. I see there's a three hour movie and the, what we heard about it was like, yes, it's extremely lavish and stuff, but it's some of the criticism is like, it's overly reliant on the performances. It's too long. And I was like, oh, I'm in for a hell of a time. <laughs> and yes, there were probably too many performances. It's the performances have to take up an hour or an hour and a half of this three hour movie. There's like yeah. lots and lots of set pieces. And I interestingly was thinking a little bit about uh, around the world in 80 days watching it because it is that sort of thing where if it's 1936 and you're like, oh, I never get to go to New York and see a Broadway show. This like brings the follies to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the the numbers, the performances are very impressive. The staging is great. There are lots of actual performers from the Ziegfeld Follies in this. Fanny Bryce is in it. Ray Bolger. There's, oh, I can't remember the name of the woman with the H names or whatever, but like lots of people who were famous performers from the Follies mm-hmm. are in this movie. So you're really like, seeing the show which uh, there's probably too much of it but at the time sure why not and then I did end up I always like William Powell I found him to be very charming I was intrigued because it sort of sells itself as like he's this epic ladies man or whatever and like much as he has these highs and doubt lows with Anna Held I don't they don't really show him cheating on her. <laughs> like, no. it's interesting how you expect it to be. He, s- he sends gifts to the other women and you're like, oh, no, it's about to be a problem. But what breaks them up is that the drunk girl grabs him and kisses him and his wife happens to walk in at the wrong time. And you're like, wow, like, is he really this faithful <laughs> to the first wife? I don't know. And then Myrna Loy is his second wife and Myrna Loy and William Powell together. Always a fun time. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't love that she doesn't come in until like two and a half hours into the movie, but <laughs> that is what it is. We should talk about Louise Reiner. Her performance is really something. <laughs> she, she goes so big. <laughs> like I don't really know how to describe her performance. Yeah. What would you say? <laughs> it was interesting because like her character is crazy yes correct and so at the beginning because i you know we saw the good earth and i think we were not bowled away by her performance in that film and so when she was playing big i was like well it makes a little bit of sense i don't know it's okay it's it's real big her character is you know like she keeps changing her mind about everything right and so she's like 
reasonably crazy. But then there are moments later <laughs> in the movie where she's supposed to be like quietly emotional. And yeah. again, those were moments where I was like, Ooh, she is not nailing. This. There's nothing quiet about anything that she does in this movie. Yeah. And so it makes sense that when she's supposed to be, have a quieter performance in the good earth as well. I'm like, not, it's not, she's not nailing it. <laughs> she can't do the quiet emotions. She can yell. No. She can, she, she can and does yell <laughs> yeah. throughout this movie. So, I think she was able to like hit more in this movie than in the good well, earth. I mean, yeah, she's putting herself on display more as an actress in this movie. Because yeah. in the good earth, they truly must have given her that award just because it was the opposite of this performance. <laughs> like she's not right. doing anything in that movie. Yeah. What generally, what did you think about Ziegfeld? I mean, it's 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 got the biopic problem where he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, he's up, yeah. he's down. I will say too, from the storytelling, I, I agree with you. Like maybe in the '30s, the gifts were enough of an implication that he was cheating on her. But I think to a modern viewer, you're like, he seems like he's it seems very like faithful. he's like trying to to secure this actress for his yeah. company, but like he doesn't ever do anything untoward. <laughs> no, and I think similarly when he's down i don't know that i ever feel like oh he's destitute now like oh he can't afford his bills like we don't really see that struggle moment i I think a part of his character that i did think was interesting is at least for the beginning of his life when he's down i don't think he thinks of himself as destitute his whole thing is like he makes some money he spends all the money because he there's nothing about saving money in his in his character. He makes money, he spends it, and he's like, all right, well, I just got to be on to the next thing. I have zero dollars, but I'll get it from somewhere is part of his, you know, personality. And so then they do try to do a thing at the end where when he has lost his money in the market, there's a lot more for him to lose, right? Because he has a wife and a kid and like he's supposed to be feeling like I've let her down. That's why he's like, Oh, it's bad that she has to go to work and it ends up affecting him emotionally. But you're right. He's not, I think it is intentionally a part of his character, but it also means that there's not a lot of stakes to anything bad that happens to him over the course of the movie. Right. And usually I don't realize he's realize he's down until late into the scene where he's like, I really need more money. I was like, Oh, we're in a down period. Yeah. (laughs) I'd like to like really experience the highs and lows. Which I necessarily wasn't. I enjoyed a number of the performances as much as there were too many of them. They were too long. Some of them were very lavishly produced. I enjoyed Ray Bolger's tap dance. He's, of course, the scarecrow in Wizard of Oz for people who don't remember that. But his number was so good. Loved it. When he was doing the splits and then like sort of getting up and then falling back down and then sort of like come on. And that skill that he has to make it seem like he's out of control and like, oh, yeah. I might fall at any second when like clearly he's totally in control of yeah. the whole thing. He's stunning. I enjoyed that. I took me it, like I, I did not realize at first that the Will Rogers cameo was not Will Rogers. He was such a convincing Will Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Will Rogers was supposed to be in this movie, but he died prior to the filming. And so they got this guy named A.A. Trimble to do a Will Rogers impression. That dude looks exactly like Will Rogers. It's a great Will Rogers impression. <laughs> yeah. But I also didn't know that Will Rogers started in the Ziegfeld Folly. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. The other performance I liked was the one with the dogs. I enjoyed watching the dogs stand in their little spaces and then move forward and then yeah. see when the dogs made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> they were so sweet. I mean, I would say most of the performances I enjoyed. It's just that they get to be sort of 
a, a lot. Like a lot. it'll start, they'll start one and I'll be like, oh, this is a fun idea. Like I really liked the one with the strings where all the women were attached by strings to the thing. And then there were like beds. Mm-hmm. Like the, it, this movie defines spectacle. Like a, the, yeah. the numbers were like, we didn't even talk about the one that is the most lavish thing with the giant silk curtains and the spinning circle oh, the thing. the wheel with the feather, all those feathers. Yeah, and then this rotating stage and all the women are on it and it going up and up and up and it was just like never-ending people appearing and you're like, holy fucking shit, <laughs> this is like a huge number. Also, this is one of the ones with a blackface jump scare. Which... I found this one very confusing. I don't know about you. I didn't do a lot of research into it. I couldn't understand why the guy was in blackface. Like, to me, it didn't seem like the song. He wasn't even really singing a minstrel song. No. He was singing a song that was like, if you knew Susie, like, I know Susie. And I was like, this, anyone could sing this. Why why are you even in blackface? That was a confusing one to me. And of all the blackfaces, this was the most blackface. Like, when Fred Astaire is in blackface in Swing Time, he doesn't do the thing where they've, like, whited out around the lips to make the lips seem huge. He's just darkened his skin. This is, like, true, full This looks like what it would have looked like in the, yeah, on stage. And unnecessary. Unnecessary. I mean, all of them are unnecessary, obviously, but I just found this one kind of mystifying. Like, they, I, it's in there because it was part of the Ziegfeld Follies. Like, you get sure. that, right? Like, I'm sure that this was, they included all of the different things that went on at the Ziegfeld Follies. But in its specifics, I was just like, I don't understand this. Like, Fred Astaire's number was a Bojangles number. So I was like, okay, yeah, bad. But I get that it's blackface. This one, I was like, he's in blackface for no reason. <laughs> Why is this even happening? I don't know. I'm just glad that all of the blackface from this year is in our losers episode. I, I feel good that about was, that too. Yeah, I think that was the right one. I'll also say, I really liked the rival slash best friend character who he has oh, yeah. the the rivalry with at the beginning, and every time something bad happens to to Ziegfeld, he just laughs and laughs. Except they're clearly best friends because whenever Ziegfeld needs money, this guy gives it to him immediately. <laughs> so they had. This- I did like the series of ups and downs. Once that guy has a partner, and the partner's always like, "Don't give him any money." He's like, "I already gave him the money." <laughs> well, but the first time that part was funny. But the first time he has the partner, Ziegfeld comes to him and is like, "I'm gonna." need money for this this and this it's gonna be a great show you're gonna love it and he goes into his partner's office he's like you're not gonna believe this after stealing my actress and marrying her and doing this to me and doing that to me now he wants me to give him money and the other guy's like wow that's horrible what do you want me to do and he says eh, give him the money <laughs> like there were lots of funny beats it was just it could have been edited down and the first thing to go is the blackface dance <laughs> get it out of there i really don't need it I know people feel all sorts of ways, obviously, about the sort of editing of materials, particularly books, to make them less racist. But like, give me an edit, a non, give me a non-racist version of the Great Ziegfeld. You'll have to take yeah. out two short bits. Yeah, it'll be fine. I mean, you could do the same thing with Swing Time, right? Like, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> just cut those scenes. We don't need them. No, I feel like if. William Powell and Fred Astaire were around today, they'd be like, yeah, go ahead and cut that out. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes. Okay, those are our seven losers. Mm -hmm. We should do our first episode mini wrap-up where we declare a best of the worst and a worst of the worst. Indeed. What Um, do you think your best of the worst is? I think my worst of the worst is Anthony Adverse. I didn't like it. (laughs) 
And then my best of the worst. Honestly, I might have enjoyed the greats I felt the most. Okay. That's what I'm going with. How about you? My best of the worst is Dodsworth. Mm-hmm. I really quite liked it. Worst of the worst. I feel like it should be Anthony Adverse. But instead. I mean, it's fine. But the absurdity of the casting of the Romeo and Juliet, really, like, I can't get over it. <laughs> I love that. I love that as your worst of the worst. <laughs> like, why would you do that? That's great. Why would you do that? Well, we know why. Your wife oh, yeah, asked you. The, your wife that was like, please, I want to play Juliet. And you're like, all right, honey. Okay. But like, there's just, it's so easy, much easier to watch a better adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. It's like there's the tons of essential them. thing. Yeah, in that's the true. World. There's like no reason to make that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love that. Okay. Let's All right. stick with that then. What are we talking about next time? We're continuing to talk about the ninth Academy Awards. So we'll get to our winners next episode. How exciting. I can't wait to talk about them. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, please reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Check out our website, OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 